Hello and welcome to the Stushy the Politics Podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. Today we're in Aberdeen for a one-off special from the SNP conference. Hamza Yousaf is having his first big gathering since becoming First Minister and SNP leader after Nicholas Sturgeon called it a day back in spring. So, with Labour on the rise and Nicholas Sturgeon still making a splash at any SNP event, how is it going for him? With that in mind, this week's Stushy is a real treat. We caught up with Nicholas Sturgeon's former Chief of Staff, Liz Lloyd, and former Scottish Labour Director of Communications, Alan Roden. Before we get to this illuminating chat, let's have a quick run around the houses and see how people are reacting to the big debate about independence in Aberdeen. Do you think this is the right strategy for independence? Well, at least we have a strategy for independence now. I think uh, this last nine years we've kind of lost focus. Uh, We've been uh, chasing a whole host of different policies and forgetting about independence. It's conclusive, and that's what we need. We need to be decisive. I think we've suffered a lot of indecision in the past, and this is what we do, right or wrong. But uh, I think you only need to look and listen to what people said today, and I think it's conclusive, and I think it will be decisive, and I think this is the turning point. I think we've made a very good decision today, and we finally got clarity on how we move forwards as we canvass on the doors. So I think it's a really positive step forward in the right direction. Um, it was uh, an historic day, actually, that clarifies our position over making progress with independence. And um, I think it enables us to give something to our activists and to the public in terms of what we mean by our journey towards independence. So I think today's been a good day. OK, I'm joined today by a crack team of political experts um, obviously, there's me, <laughs> and um, I've got to my left the esteemed editor of the Courier, David Clegg. Hello, Andy. Hello yourself, and um, I've also got two experts: Alan Roden, former communications director for Scottish Labour. Hi, Andy. Welcome aboard, and Liz Lloyd, former chief of staff to Nicholas Sturgeon. We've got some real experts on the show today, not just us imposters. No, this is premium content. (laughs) And we're going to put that to the test right now. (laughs) You say that now. Yeah, so we'll start with an easy one. We are sitting here in the rarefied um, environment of the Press and Journal Live arena, where the Mm -hmm. SNP are halfway through their conference. Liz, you have, this is not your first rodeo. I think it's about my 19th conference rodeo. (laughs) 19 years you've been coming to the SMP conference? It is indeed. Wow. From a little baby junior researcher to running the show. (laughs) So you only have to do one party conference. The journalists have to do all the parties at this this time of year. Yeah, but we had two a year. Your spring True. conference, autumn True. conference, never yeah. stopped. But, um, yeah, well, God, every single, like the Lib Dems in Inverness yeah. and <laughs> Labour in Oban. Yes, I remember that, I remember that one, Labour in Oban, yeah, Inverness. And... Lib Dems in Aviemore. Oh, that was a good one. I did one in Aviemore a very long time ago. Yeah. Like, Aviemore was good. Aviemore was quite nice. Yeah. I'd like to go up to Inverness. I want, I, want a, I want a party conference in Inverness again. I think the great tragedy of Scottish politics for the last 10 years is that the SNP has been too big for Inverness and the Labour Party has been too small for Inverness. Uh, yeah. So, which way is it? We're going to meet, meet to the middle somewhere. Yeah, so the top of the converse, conversation yesterday, which was uh, Sunday, I think, um, yeah. was, of course, the big debate on independence, mm. which is um, something that the SNP... Do talk about a we lot. We do, mm-hmm. we do, yeah. Do you have it 
clear in your head <laughs> about exactly what the policy is now, Liz? Explain it to Explain us. Explain it to you. Well, I have clear in my head what the motion says, which the slight issue I've got, which is different, I think, to what is being said. Mm. Um, so people talk about de facto referendum, and I've never really understood what that meant. Does it mean that the SNP win the majority of seats and then you negotiate independence? That's not what the motion actually says. It says you win the majority of seats and you negotiate a way to express the democratic will of the people of Scotland. So that could be you enter a constitutional convention, which I think was something that was added yesterday. It could be you negotiate a referendum. It's not uh, you immediately run up to the top of the hill and wave a flag and say you're independent. It is very much not that. So that is my best effort, I think, at how what it actually means. I am not sure that you'll hear that much of it post-conference. It's a fairly difficult elevator pitch, that, isn't it? If you want to sum that up in five (laughs) seconds, it's quite complicated. Can I check if I'm right about this? You can mark my work on this. This is is my understanding, Andy. If they get the majority of seats at the next Westminster election, and because the number of Westminster seats is dropping from 59 to 57, that will be 29 seats, then that then... It is considered a mandate for Humza Yusuf to go to Downing Street and say, give me an independence referendum or something like it. Is that, yes. is that the policy in a yes. nutshell? That's right. Yes. And originally, there were three, three different options. First of all, it was, let's try and get 50% of the vote. I think that was Nicholas Surgeon's first yeah. idea. Incredibly challenging. That got dropped. And then it became most seats, which is different to majority. That could be as small as 23, 24. And then that changed yesterday to majority. So no wonder everyone's a bit confused, to be honest. And and majority because, my understanding, majority because that is essentially how you win an election. A majority of seats, not a majority of votes. Mm. Where you win a referendum with a majority of votes. And I think that's the point of difference that they're trying to make. My general view, though, is, and I think this is why they very clearly had it on Sunday, and I don't think you've heard anybody talk about it since, is we've spent all summer talking about this process. Let's settle it. Let's move on. Mm. And I think that's where they want to be. Um, and I, we'll be very surprised if you hear a lot of people talking about this conference motion in a general election campaign. Well, here's, here's my thoughts on this, about why I don't think it's credible. I take your point, Liz. I don't, they probably, probably won't be hearing much more about it. But the SNP currently have how many MPs? 41 or something? Yeah, a few have disappeared recently. Yeah. 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 So they they could conceivably lose 12 seats and then say, this is a mandate for us to negotiate independence. It doesn't doesn't work. What I don't understand is, let's see how this scenario, let's say they do get 29 seats, which is a big fall, you know, uh, and then you you rock up to number 10, Keir Starmer's new prime minister, and say, we want to be independent. Keir Starmer's just going to laugh in the face. This is why I don't think you're going to hear any more about it, to be honest. (laughs) And essentially, I think if I sort of try and rationalise it backwards, if you like, it essentially confirms a position that has always been the case, which is that the SNP wins a majority of seats in any parliament. That is a mandate for the SNP to pursue independence on behalf of the people of Scotland, because that is what they voted for. I don't, and I know a lot of people want to say it's more than that. I don't think it really is more than that. I think it is essentially a restatement of that position, which has been the position in every Hollywood election and Westminster election that I've ever been involved in. So you were working for the government whenever the de de facto referendum position was put out. What was the thinking behind the scenes there? Why did did they land on that then with Nicola Sturgeon? So I can... I have more sympathy for how you landed on how that was landed on then. It's not something I would necessarily have done, but you go to the Supreme Court to test whether or not the Scottish Parliament's able to call a referendum on its own. 
it was felt that there needed to be a kind of alternative for if the Supreme Court said, which they did, said, no, you don't have that power. So then what is the mechanism by which people in Scotland can democratically show what they want? If you can't have a referendum because you can't do it yourself and you can't have a referendum because the UK government won't let you, how do you test people's democratic views? And the only other mechanism we have for testing people's democratic views is an election. So that's where the language of de facto referendum and 50% plus one of the electorate mm. comes because it's the only way the electorate can show we want this. Yeah. You know, I think as part of what is a much longer journey to independence at some point, that will probably need to happen. But it won't necessarily be a target or a goal. There will just be at some point where 50% plus one of the population vote for independence supporting parties. Yeah, there's a confusion though because a lot of people will have been tuning in a little bit and thinking, right, so if the SNP win the next general election, Scotland will be independent. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) It's not going to happen. Is that not likely to put people off from voting SNP? This is why I think they should really have clarified what they actually meant. Because I think if you are the swing voter that goes between the SNP and Labour, and these are the people who are going to determine the election Mm -hmm. in Scotland, that you might be independence-minded. But this sounds a bit... Scary. This is a bit like we're just going to, you know, like I said at the beginning, we're just going to raise a flag and say, right, we're off. When that's not what anybody's actually talking about, nor is it, you know, it's not what Hamza Yusuf's about to do. It's not his style, you know. So it is about a mandate for a conversation, a mandate for a referendum, a mandate for a constitutional convention. But it's not we are instantly independent. And I think they're made a misjudgment there in that it will put people off. Mm, I I think there's definitely a risk. Um, you know, this isn't high on the agenda for voters no. right no. now. And I think just talking about this uh, and, you know, and this, this convoluted process, like David said, it's going to put voters off. Yeah. Right? I think actually, you know, this probably benefits Labour, you know. Yeah. You're going to look and go, well, Labour's talking about the cost of living crisis, but the SNP is talking about mm. process. And, yeah, well, the last six months is like, I think very much get the feeling here that people in the SNP want to put like the last six months behind of mm. had to have a leadership contest, had a summer of national assemblies discussing this. They have been talking about the cost of living crisis. They have been talking about public services. But what's been heard is this, talking Mm. to themselves. And so the vote was taken yesterday. Conference today is not about this. Conference tomorrow in terms of speech will, I don't think, be about this. This is about, right, we've done it. We parked it. I think he was trying to say from the stage yesterday, we've done the process. Now let's get back to talking about the vision of independence and to talking about what matters to people now, which is the cost of living, the economy, public services. Could you make the argument that in a Westminster election, which is going to be defined by Keir Starmer versus Rishi Sunak, who's going to be prime minister. Historically, the SNP had struggled to get into the conversation about Westminster elections. Nicola Sturgeon was the first one as leader of the SNP who became prominent at a UK level in the general election debate. And that was partially to do with their, well, it was partially because I guess it was after the, so close after the independence referendum in 2015, and also the arithmetic looked like the SNP could have the balance of power. No polls are showing that just now. Given their only unique selling point then is going to be talking about Scottish independence, could you make the argument that for a core vote strategy in what's going to be a difficult election, that's maybe not bad to be talking about independence? I, I don't think so. I think, you know, if you look back to the 2015 general election when, you know, the SNP had that huge landslide, that was because Nicola Sturgeon said this contest wasn't 
about independence, wasn't about referendum. We had that slogan, Stronger for Scotland. We're sitting here with these lanyards around our necks from... Which say Stronger for Which say Stronger for Scotland. Incredibly powerful slogan. Yeah. And I think, actually, if the SNP went into the next election saying, look, you know, it's pretty certain Labour's going to win, you know, who's going to be the stronger voice for Scotland in the House of Commons? I think they'd actually do better than just talking about independence. You're going to find a rare point of Labour, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, we can do this occasionally. I, I think there is an element to which, and you're hearing this from the sage, you know, like the idea of real change being the change to independence, not just switching from Tory to Labour. But I think what the SNP need to do in the election is this Labour Party is probably going to win, but it's not as good as you want it to be. It's not as good as Scotland needs it to be. It's not delivering everything Scotland wants and is asking for and that the electorate wants. And so the job of the SNP and hung parliament isn't required to make this argument is to say, we can keep Labour honest. We can make them better. You can get a better Labour government if you've got SNP MPs down there representing for Scotland because mm -hmm. Labour will be watching their backs ahead of the 2026 election mm -hmm. and will not want the SNP being in a position to be able to pressure them to do more. Labour will have to fold if the SNP do that on certain issues. Well, um, we're, we're obviously here at the SNP conference, but in the rear view mirror is Labour mm. conference, which you were... I was in Liverpool, yes. So what was the mood there? It, it was incredibly positive. Now, I've been going to the Labour Party conferences for, for many years and... Not as long as this has been going. No, <laughs> that's, that's very true. Well, no, well maybe, you maybe. You the Daily Mail. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes I used to go to the Daily Mail badge on. I'm a bit more welcome there, there nowadays. <laughs> uh, but only, only a little bit, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, it was positive. I mean, yeah, I have to remember how Labour is not used to being in a position of winning. Um, it's, it's, used <laughs> it's been to, a while. It's been a while. It's still used to looking at a defeat or you know, or factionism or in in fighting. And what was just remarkable about, about Liverpool was just everyone was united. You know, so the party was united. You actually had you had the businesses and the trade unions getting getting along. It was quite an extraordinary um, atmosphere. It really was. I haven't been at a conference like that for for many many a year. I went to labour conferences in my last job, and they were mostly post twenty fifteen. Mm -hmm. What was there in 2013-2014? But after that, mm. the Scottish defeat. Yeah. In 2015, when they went down to just Ian Murray as their one MP, they have Scots night. There's always a big Scottish flavour to to the first night. It's generally at conferences. Sunday, Sunday night, and that was always a rather weird atmosphere. Whenever there was one MP, I presume the Rollerglen was feeling yeah. heavy. I mean, people thought so. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, some, Michael Shanks, the new the new uh, Labour MP for Rutherglen and Hamilton West, um, what was there in Liverpool? He, you know, everywhere he went, he was getting mobbed for self for selfies. Wow. Um, and the Scots night was quite, you know, it, it was a party. I mean, everyone was, everyone was shattered because all the you know, activists had been, you know, uh, knocking the door. So an incredibly long by-election campaign. But that, uh, you know, the adrenaline got, got them through and it was incredibly uh, upbeat. But you're, you're, Dave was absolutely right. There have been Scot some Scots nights which have felt like wakes. This, uh, <laughs> Even the one after the independence referendum before the 2015 election, I remember the being 20, really yeah, weird. I can't, was that bright? I think maybe it was. I remember everyone was yeah. shattered because it was the weekend after no, the independence. was Liverpool. Was it Liverpool again? No, man, maybe it was Manchester. It was a couple of days after Carney. the... Coastal City in Yeah, London. exactly. Somewhere in England. <laughs> I, I poured a pint in the Rovers' return, so it must have, uh, it must have been Manchester. But that was two days after the referendum, so... The journalists are shattered. All the activists are shattered. But people, were, Joanne Lamont was the leader at the time, and the briefing against her started that weekend. You know, he just yeah, won the referendum, yeah. and then yeah. like, it's been a bit too close for comfort for you all to sit back. I think is kind of part of that. Was like, yeah, oh yeah, that yeah. should we should have done better. It should have been more. Yeah, traditional yeah, I think that was it. You'd seen Heartland's vote. Yes. 
yeah. that should have been voting Labour or voting Labour or voting No. Yeah. And yeah, that's the sort of start I of it. I remember the, that very clearly because I was about yeah. one of the only journalists left standing um, the next day when the day after the referendum on independence, I went to what was supposed to be Labour's <laughs> big celebration. Mm. They were all there. They were all, everyone was on the front seats, you know, the, the Ed Miliband, then he just hid. And then it suddenly mm. you could, you felt like mm-hmm. the air change, change. And you went, they've just mm-hmm. realised that they're in Glasgow and they've won, but they've also mm. lost. Awesome. And that was the beginning of a very long, really was, really long, was. long route back for them. Yeah. Yeah. Did it feel like that route back had been it, completed? Well, not completed, but I mean, um, the, the Scotland was the topic of conversation in, in Liverpool this week. And I think maybe the size of that victory in Rutherglen took a lot of people by surprise uh, in the in the Labour Party um, in England. They weren't, see, they hadn't seen that that coming, and they were just like, "Oh, we're actually going to do incredibly well." Potentially, I think in there's Scotland a real again. risk for Labour in what they took from the Rutherglen Hamilton win. Yeah. So, like you know, it was a very good win. You know, I think I've had one by-election victory of that scale before, or or that level of surprise before. And yeah, it feels Mm. great. And you suddenly get a buzz and you're like, right, we're game on. Mm. And watching from the outside got the impression that there was a little bit too much game on. It's a done deal. We've got it. Now, the SNP's got a real hard fight on its hands. If it gets itself organised, it is a very good fighting machine. But actually less from the Scottish contingent, but the the England contingent had Mm -hmm. kind of gone, all oh, right, that's sorted. Yeah. The SNP yeah. speaks Scotland's one. Yeah, yeah. We're in. Yeah, no, that is definitely a risk. And yeah. that, that felt like a bit of the vibe coming from English MPs and sort of English elements of the Labour leadership. And you're kind of like, well, actually, Scotland's a bit of a volatile political place at the moment, it feels like. A lot of things, if you say the election are years away, a year away, there's a room for a lot to change. Labour, SNP, do the Tories, stage some form of comeback down south. There's a lot of movement, so I would be very cautious about banking it. Yeah. I think that's right. I think, I think it's, we're looking for, for a very competitive election, yeah. I think it's gone. So we're not going to go back to the pre-2010 sort of when Labour was winning 40-plus seats, that, you know, but nor are we going to go back to sort of you know, 2015 when S&P wins them all. So I think we're going to be really close between Labour and the S&P. Yeah, we might get to something that looks like normal politics everywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> normal <laughs> politics. Well, talking of normal politics, um, the SNP are in a, a kind of coalition as well at the moment with the Green Party. Um, are you hearing much from no. people here about the impact of that? I've not been. I think that's the most striking thing about this conference for me because all the chat whenever I speak to the political journalists at Holyrood is about this butice agreement with the SNP and the Greens and how it's killing the SNP or it's bad for the Greens or whatever. My taxi driver up said, oh, the SNP are just in hock to the Greens now. They're, 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 swe- they're switching off the oil. It's going to kill us. That's what the taxi driver said in Aberdeen. In this hall, none of the activists that I spoke to seemed bothered by it at all. No, I, nobody's, it's not come up anywhere that I've been. It's not been mentioned. I don't think it is the big divide in the party that people think it is. I mean, remember, the SNP membership backed that agreement, or admittedly two years ago, but backed it by like, 92, 94%, something like that. You know, they were really strongly behind it. The SNP also has a, you know, backs against the wall strategy, which is like when people are telling us you're doing something wrong and they're like, you shouldn't be with the Greens, they're the wrong people. Activists will kind of dig in. It's not necessarily the best best reaction, mm. but they be like, no, we're not wrong. But also you talk about oil and gas. Every event in this conference, every fringe event in this conference seems to be about the potential of net zero, the potential of renewables, the potential for offshore mm. wind. That I think the transition... People understand it, people see it. And you can't blame being in partnership with the Greens for the NHS not being as good as it should be or 
and not enough focus on economic growth. Those issues, those are the things that the S&P needs to look in the mirror and see itself. It's not a case of blaming someone else. Yeah. I, I did wonder how much impact it was having with the voters because you know, we, we, we read a lot about you know, this Butaris agreement. You can say your tax driver mentioned it. Maybe that's a Northeast thing, but certainly the feedback I got from colleagues knocking on doors in, in Rutherglen was that it just wasn't coming up at all. No one was talking about the, the, yeah. the, the coalition with the Greens. Yeah, and when you... I haven't done this for a while, but certainly in the past, when you focus group voters, when you talk to them, voters like the idea of political parties working together. Mm. They think it's good. They think it's what politicians should do. What mm. they don't like is the sort of tribal headbanging. Yeah. So as long as it's delivering, and I think that's the issue that there's been, is that the Greens have been responsible for some of the things that have not been delivered by mm. the government. Mm. You know, they've sort of, I mean, on one or two occasions, they didn't start it. They just ended up holding the can at the end. Um and it's the issue of delivery rather than the issue of the Butte House Agreement and the partnership that is the problem. You would have been involved whenever that deal with the Greens was put together. Sort of, yeah. What was the what was the thinking? How did it come about behind the scenes? It's a couple of things. Um, there'd been a lot of... So one part was just we'd just come out of a minority government, you know, by just a smidgen, mm-hmm. you know, one or two votes. And there had been too many occasions of votes of no confidence, of sitting on the edge and of having to barter and trade. And you, I don't think it's understood on the outside how much time yeah. is invested in having to do the bartering as a minority government to get votes over the line, to get legislation passed, mm-hmm. bits of legislation you weren't able to pass. And it just absorbs all the energy that you could be spending in developing new policies and making things better for people. It really like slows up the machine. Um, so there was an idea, well, if we've got an agreed programme and we've got a majority by putting the two parties together that will do it, actually, we can do more and do it quicker. And that was about some of the post-pandemic recovery. That was about some of the green transition. That was about some difficult bits of legislation that will be needed around energy and things like that. Was that, right, we can just get on and do it if we know we've got those votes in the bag. And the negotiation can happen internally much quicker because you've kind of predefined what it's about. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the aim of it. It was essentially a better government and the solidity of knowing you were going to stay in government because you had that deal no one was going to vote to get you out. And you didn't have to horse trade between Labour, the Tories and the mm. Greens. Like sometimes six times a week, you know, six votes could be up in a week. And how much time that takes out of the politicians. You, you were there long enough to, to remember the, 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 the Greens when they... When they, <laughs> when they brought down the budget. I could say those, but I was a reporter at the time, uh, as you were, Andy, as well. You know, yeah. covering that budget and the notes being passed yeah. in, in the chamber. It's quite extraordinary scenes. Head of yeah. press and research when yeah. the budget went down. And that was like a real... A real, real moment. And then I've negotiated five or six budgets with different finance secretaries. And, you know, people, you get journalists saying the deal's done, the deal's done. And we're like, no, the deal is not done. <laughs> well, the late I would grades, be, yeah. yeah, I would be insisting that, like, nothing is done until it's written down. Like, I would want the exchange of emails from Patrick Harvey's office, you know, like, two hours before any budget was delivered, before anybody stood up. It's like, this is, you know... This took a long time and a lot of effort. And you are also trying to, you know, well, I might do a deal with the Greens, but mm. what if the deal with Labour is cheaper? Or I can do <laughs> We also, also had um, Margot, you know, Margot oh, McDonald, who we all, we all miss, you know, miss dearly, you know. She and she, she always managed to get something out for Edinburgh. It's fantastic. You know, Margot was brilliant at playing that. She had that one vote. Yeah. She had John Swinney in her sights. And it was always, <laughs> you will give me one thing if you want my yeah. vote. Actually, yeah. some of the Lib Dems in the islands, they managed to play that as well. You okay. will pay for stuff for island ferries. And I think we had one where 
Two, two Lib Dems yes. voted for it because it there was something was for Orkney and something for Shetland. Yeah. And the rest of the party yeah. rejected it. That's right. That was very recently. We're, yeah. we're, we're really getting into the geek we stuff today. I, I'm, just, I'm just delighted to say that I'm too young to remember the grunt budget falling out. <laughs> Memories. Well, let's, let's try and let's bring it back up to date then, yeah. shall we? Right. We're back in the room. Um, we're talking before Hamza Yusuf makes yeah. his big speech, but um, there'll be plenty of coverage about that um, when it happens. Um, and of course, anyone listening to this can can go online, PNJ and the Courier, and read more. Um, how Liz, how do you feel that um, Hamza Yusuf has done getting into the swing of being first minister? Um, I think it's taken a bit of time, but I think over the last couple of months, I think he's found his feet as first minister. I would just say, you know, we're having this conversation at a time when him and his family are going mm. through a really difficult situation yeah. with his wife's family being stuck in Gaza, and particularly over the last week, I think he has really shown that he's got, you know, he's got an ability to speak to people. He's got an ability to kind of reach across the divide, which he hasn't had the chance to show. And he's come across brilliantly this week under the most extreme pressure. Um, What that will have done to his preparation for his conference speech, I hate to think, because I cannot imagine that he has had the mental space or the time to sit down and do the work that you do in the run-up to a conference speech of you know, identifying the policies, crafting the language. And this is his first big one. So he would have been wanting to put a lot of time and effort into getting it right. And, you know, circumstances way beyond his control are going to make that difficult. And I think it's also going to influence the tone and the tenor of what he says, what he does and how it's delivered in a conference tomorrow. Um, But yeah, I think the government has started to find his feet. He's started to find his way as first minister. Talking to people on the inside, you know, they very much now know how to work with Hamza. There has been a, tra- a transition from this is the way Nicola did it to this is the way Hamza does it. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, like once a government system understands this is the way he does it, this is what we need to do, this is how decisions get made, then stuff can really start happening. At the beginning, you're kind of like, oh, nobody knows how to deal with it, nobody knows what to do, how does he want to be spoken to, what briefings does he get, what information does he need, what does he need to make a decision? I think they get that now. So I think they can get on and do more now. Someone suggested to me that he's maybe a better first minister than he was as a cabinet secretary. Would you, would you agree with that? I'm, I think I'm actually getting that impression in that because the role of first minister is a kind of convening mm. and deciding. You know, you're chairman of the board, if you like, mm-hmm. and you are holding to account all the other people who you've tasked with delivering and doing stuff. You listen to their views, you listen to their opinions, and you come up with it. And he is very good at listening. He's very good at the consensual thing. He wants to hear people's views before he does stuff. And I think that probably does make him a better first minister than it does frontline cabinet secretary. Equally, you would have some people with great frontline cabinet secretaries who would be terrible at doing that. (laughs) No offence to any of them. You're all my friends and I love you dearly. Uh, (laughs) One one thing that I've noticed not being on the reporting frontline since he took over is that there has been a different approach to the media is that is that fair andy i'm just i was wondering what alan make, makes it from a communication perspective he does seem to have been more accessible more yeah. in front of the media very, very accessible I mean, andy will have more knowledge of that than myself but you can certainly see you know the, the you see the huddles um as we call them in in journalese uh, taking place in the scottish parliament um so you can see that accessibility i think from a common point of view at the start he made a few uh, missteps. He was mm-hmm. often repeating lines back um, at him. There's one where he, what was he said, the, the SNP is not a criminal organisation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, 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 yeah, you, you don't repeat these accusations. Yeah. Um, depends what you mean but, by a burner phone. Yeah, exactly. That was the other one. What, what, yeah. what depends on the definition yeah, of a burner phone. Charge, yeah. Exactly. So I think, you know, mistakes there. But 
you know, um, I think he's largely got over that. I think the accessibility is, you know, probably welcomed by the by the journalists. I'm, I'm sure you agree on that. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely think that he has he's made himself available. Yeah. Um, probably he regrets doing that a few times, <laughs> but that has been good. There's been uh, an understanding, I think, that he needs to he needs to get his message up. He doesn't want to have yeah. just just been you know butt up against the brick wall all the time. You know, you, you have to have open lines of communication in order to do uh, the job, really. Yeah. So, so I think part of it is getting yeah. known as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's probably at a point now where not, and I don't mean this to say cut off access, but row it back a little bit. There's other things that he should be spending more of his time on. He's established himself. Everyone knows he's first minister now. The recent sort of polls on his approval rating have shown him going up as other party leaders are going down, which is something he needed to do. He needed to get known. People needed to go, this is the first minister. This is the guy. So he needed to be seen to do that. I think he's now in a position where he could be more selective about mm. I go out and do the things that only a first minister can do. I answer the questions that only a first minister can answer because I think in a run up to an election, you really need to say to use the office of first minister as part of your platform. And that means not doing every day, mm-hmm. not, yeah. you know, yeah. not being in a huddle every day, but being much clearer about I'm here because I've got this to say. And does it maybe look, I mean, when you think back to Nicholas Sturgeon, you should often be in front of a podium. Yeah. You know, with, with the first minister where Hummers are sort of surrounded He's by journalists. He's not a podium guy. Right, okay. <laughs> I watched him on Sunday do his speech at the independence debate, and he was away from the podium in a minute. Okay. You know, just roaming the stage. Interesting. He is much more comfortable, I think, with the free-form ad-lib, speaking off the cuff. I think his advisors are probably less comfortable with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a feeling that by the time he gets to his proper conference speech, he might be behind the podium. But, you know, that's much more his style. Hi. And you're, as former chief of staff to Nicola Sturgeon, um, do you keep in regular contact with the former first minister? Yeah. What's your What's your relationship with the, the former first minister? Uh, right it's now? kind of gone from, like, boss and chief of staff to, you know, pass, go for a drink, go for coffee. Hang out occasionally. I haven't seen her in a couple of weeks. Apparently she's here. So I'll maybe see her in a bit. She's doing she's doing a huddle, I think, as we speak, <laughs> down the stairs. Yeah, just uh, yeah, at the very moment that we started recording this, I believe. <laughs> Nicholas Timing's Sturgeon. everything, yeah. guys. <laughs> Nicholas Sturgeon appeared. Um, but don't worry. What we, do we make we of her? What do we make of her turning up today? What's the what's the view on that? Um It's a tough one. I mean, I'm not sure if I was someone I would necessarily want. To, yeah, to remind the country and the party of there was a superstar first minister before me, and isn't isn't also the risk that you know we we as you said this this press conference is happening right now, but should we be asked about process again? Potentially, yeah. You know, I I think it's good that she's come, and I think it's something which goes. This is away from the sort of political management and does it overshadow and does it do it. The party never had the chance to say thank you or goodbye to Nicola Sturgeon, okay. so you know she resigned from Butte House that she didn't go to the announcement of the new leader. You know, mm. she very much left that stage to the person that had won. And so if you think about previous transitions, they happen at a party conference. Somebody does a handover. There is a moment where somebody gets to say goodbye, you know, and she's not had that. Mm. Um, and so I don't think she's here to speak. You know, I'm not aware that there's a plan for her to get up on the stage. But I think conference will be given a moment for, if you like, the SNP family, it's not, it's not really for the wider public to say to her, I think John Swinney might be here yeah. today as well, to say thank you. Yeah. And, you know, that is something that kind of fits with the party's ethos. People, I think, were missing that. And I think it's mm. given, not in an overshadowing way, because the party's very clear, Hamza is their leader now, but it's given them a little spark today. Yeah. Like, it's a nice little thing. It's nice to see her. Everybody wants to know that she's doing well. Okay. And she'll be gone again. Mm. I think um, 
before we wrap it up, I think, um, you know, Alan, you're a typical a swing, swing voter. voter. <laughs> 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 I so just using this... Um, Between the Daily Mail and the Labour Party. <laughs> <laughs> Between, well, sometimes you have to be a swing voter just to vote Labour. You know, <laughs> different factions or pick your, pick your leader. Yeah. Um, I think, have you been captured by anything you're, you're hearing at the SNP conference? Do you, you know, just looking on from outside? Um, it does feel quite a more positive atmosphere than perhaps I think I expected and others have thought, given the, you know, the, the trials and tribulations I've had over the past few months. Everyone does some quite upbeat, mm. despite you know, losing a by-election only you know, two weeks ago. It feels a bit quieter, though, than previous conferences. Um, it, you know, maybe not helped by what we're here in the P&J Live uh, venue, which is massive. Mm. Um, and that maybe doesn't help. It doesn't feel as busy as perhaps it, but it does feel that there are fewer people in previous years. Um, but still, you know, it's a party that can still uh, attract more people than any other political party in Scotland can. Yeah, I think it is a little bit smaller. Some of that, I think, is the politics, the current state mm. of things. Some of it is it's half term and four girl at home with the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. really poor scheduling on that pub. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it does feel a little bit quieter, but they are in greater heart than even I thought yeah. they'd be. I mean, it's a resilient party. There's a lot of people who are new, but there's also a lot of old timers who remember what it's like to lose, mm. who remember what it's like never to win a Westminster election. Um, and I think they are probably in the ascendancy this time and kind of just saying, right, look, we've got to get on with the job. It's got that kind of workman-like tone to it, I think. Is it that split in the back? Because I was thinking about that at the by-election. There'll be, there'll be a generation of young S&P people who've never lost. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but then there will be that, you know, that generation who remember, yeah. you know, when you only had six MPs. And, yeah. Um, and is that split there in the party? I think... I don't think the young ones take for granted that mm. they will win, but there is a group of members and activists who have not experienced defeat yeah. in the same way that some of us have. I mean, I reflect and I remember the 2005 Westminster election with six and the 2010 mm. Westminster election where we got six and then yeah. won that majority in Holyrood the year after. Mm. So Scottish politics can flip and change. And Absolutely. Like I say, there's people long enough in the tooth here to remember that. And you see if the SNP do have a bad result in this Westminster election next year, people will forget about that yeah. going into the Holyrood yeah. election in 2026. Yeah. It was, people were very used to voting uh, Labour at Westminster and SNP at Holyrood for a long you know, time. I actually think that's kind of, in the context of being in the mm. union, I think that's Scotland's preferred choice. Is a Labour government there and an SNP government in Holyrood. And, you know, and it's get 18 never, months to see if that works. It's, it's happened for about six months or something yeah. When was that then? But it was brown and salmon, and so it wasn't yeah. the best relationship. <laughs> oh, no, I'd repeat. 2007. Yeah, a bit longer than six months. But, but, yeah. the, but there was that period, so 2010, um, obviously Labour lost across the UK, but did very well in, in Scotland, uh, 40, 41 MPs, yeah. I think, from memory. Increased um, the share, did it? Yeah, I, because I think the did increase it. And the Scottish Prime was, Minister was part of that. Yes, of course, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yes, but and you had um, Ian Gray was a Scottish Labour leader at the time, and Jim Murphy was... Uh, what well, the outgoing Scottish secretary. I remember the day after that election, you know, they were incredibly upbeat and thought this puts us in really good stead for 2011, which is when the holiday election was, and they thought, you know, we're heading mm-hmm. to, to Butte House. A year late, you know, a year yeah. later, look what happened. You know, I also think one of the things that happened there is one of the risks this time mm-hmm. is Labour having a large contingent of MPs who want influence over what happens in Scotland, who will want influence over what Anna's does. And who did they work for? And what is their job? And that is a big part of what happened to Labour between 2010 and 2015. Mm-hmm. So if there's a big Labour contingent this time, that, you know, two years, 18 months in those, between those two elections is quite critical to what happens next. Can I ask Liz, if, they, <laughs> <No>. if, <laughs> if, that, if that general election is 
a bad result of the S&P. Does Hamza survive? I think it's probably on Hamza. I, I don't think the party's going to turn around and boot him out. Mm-hmm. I think the question is, does he feel like he's done enough? It feels to me like 29 is now set as the benchmark. It's going to be hard to get less than that mm-hmm. and stay. Mm-hmm. But it's not a particularly high level, given where they are now, I mm-hmm. suppose. Well, um, and Stephen Flynn yesterday was saying that he comfortably exceed that majority. So okay. that bold prediction as well. I think there's one question which hasn't come up yet. So I'll just tuck it in and we can leave it on there. Um, the other question for the SNP is one that they can't do anything about, is can they remain the third party at Westminster? Yeah. Mm. If the Lib Dems do well in England, mm-hmm. there's nothing you can do about that. And then that's a drop in profile. It's no PMQs. It's a real change in less, the status. Less money as well, probably. Yeah, yeah. it's a real change mm-hmm. in the status. So there needs to be a real fight for not just the 29, but to stay as the third largest party. Interesting. Yeah, and that's not entirely of your own It's control, not in their so own yeah. control at all. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, well, on that conundrum... <laughs> I just I think we should wrap it up and I'll just say thank you again to our guests Alan Roden and Liz Lloyd and Dave Clegg. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you.